Doulas don't have a scope of practice. Doulas have a job description. They've got a role. And that role is something that the doula actually has a lot of flexibility to define. And one of the things that should be on that, that every doula should think about for whether she wants to include it or not in her job description is whether her role includes protecting the client's right of informed consent and refusal. You can decide whether you're willing to do that. When doulas bear witness to the abuse of their clients, they can come out traumatized, secondarily traumatized by the abuses that they witness. The only reason anybody would get interested in saying what a doula can or can't do is to protect doctors, never to protect women. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Well, good morning, and thank you for welcoming me to join your podcast again. It's so wonderful always to be able to sit here and talk with both of you. So I'm thrilled to be back. Um, I'm Hermine Hayes-Klein, and to just reintroduce myself to your listeners, I'm an attorney. I'm based out of Portland, Oregon, and uh, for over a decade, my work has focused on advocacy related to patient rights in pregnancy, childbirth, and postpartum. And so that work includes advocacy for midwives and access to midwives in all settings, advocacy for doulas and um, access to doulas and legal security for midwives and doulas, as well as bringing actions on behalf of birthing women and people who have experienced abuse or and informed consent violations during childbirth that have left them with trauma um, and or physical injuries. All right. Well, we're so excited to have you back, Hermine. It's always an interesting conversation. We always learn a lot. And for anyone who decides to look back at your previous episodes, you came to us with two very interesting and a little difficult to listen to emotionally episodes, number 138 and 153, about cases you've been working on. And episode 178, where we talked about more about the systemic care, particularly around home birth midwives. But right now you have a new project going on. And yeah. it has something to do with doulas. Indeed. So uh, I recently launched a sort of um, a project that's tangential to my main law practice um, because I saw a need from my work in the last decade. And the this new project is called the Birthrights Law Project, and it's at birthrightslaw.com. And so the first two services that I'm rolling out through this project are relating to legal security for out-of-hospital midwives who work at the home or the birth center setting, and for doulas. And because I'd worked on so many legal cases and advocacy issues relating to both midwives and doulas over the years, I've been able to really sort of see the kinds of legal challenges or legal problems that both midwives and doulas can face, as well as the sort of wide variety of existing documents that midwives and doulas use to try to memorialize what they're doing with their clients. For midwives, that's their client agreements, that's their transfer agreements, and that's all of their informed consents relating to issues like testing during pregnancy, um, relating to planned breach or twins birth, planned vaginal birth after cesarean. That documentation is very important if somebody comes along later and says to a midwife, you shouldn't have allowed her to make that choice or you should not have supported her in that choice. The documentation showing the client's choice and their understanding of their options and the risks of those options is uh, everything for defending any kind of claim alleging that the midwife should not have supported a, a given decision. And for doulas, uh, you know, there's just been this interesting evolution over the last decade from doulas being some, you know, a, a concept that's really only known kind of within the birth world. A lot of folks in society 
generally don't haven't known what that is, but that's changing and people are becoming more and more familiar with doulas as a profession. Hospitals are now hiring doulas to work for them. Um, there's more, you know, even Medicaid coverage for doula services in every, in, in many states. And, um, and so doulas are being more recognized, but, and with that increased recognition, with that increased professionalism, even certification offered by some states, comes increased legal risk for doulas so that doulas are now being included as defendants in lawsuits related to um, childbirth. And so again, their documentation is very important for their protection, as well as um, recognizing that the client agreement can be a powerful tool for doulas and their clients to sort of define that doula's job description and role and come together in their plan for what the doula is going to do in a given birth so that they can be on the same page and both the client and the doula can be as uh, secure and safe as possible as they move forward together in partnership. So um, right now, that's what we're offering through Birth Rights Law Project is um, support with documentation and processes related to that documentation, as well as the option to have lawyers on uh, sort of uh, uh, general counsel available for general counsel. You can pay a monthly fee and be able to turn to our team of lawyers at any point if something comes up, if you have a concern, if something happened at a birth that is making you worried, or you're having a problem before a birth around communication, either with the client or with the care team, um, you can have a lawyer on standby that you can call up at any time with assistance. So that's what we're doing with Birth Rights Law Project. And I'm thrilled to be able to come on here and talk with you guys about why it's needed and what we hope to achieve. It sounds it sounds like a very interesting concept and and very much needed because doula work is becoming more and more well-known and important and doulas are definitely, um, I, I think women are relying on their doulas more and more to help them make the appropriate childcare decisions rather than just being there for the emotional support. So can you explain a little bit about how, like why this benefits doulas and why they need this and, and do they actually need like malpractice insurance or is this just a good resource for them to have some of the pieces in place so that they hopefully don't need that. Yes. Well, I mean, to get to your last question first, I think that that decision about whether to invest in malpractice or liability insurance um, is one that every doula kind of has to make on her own. Of course, it wouldn't be malpractice insurance because malpractice is a concept that applies to licensed healthcare professionals regarding their standards of care. And doulas are not licensed health professionals in that sense. Um, so uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a liability insurance expert. I don't know if any medical malpractice companies are making liability malpractice insurance available to doulas. Maybe they are, and, and I'm just not aware of that yet. But I think there could be personal liability insurance could be something that a doula could access and to, to see whether that that could apply in the event that they're sued. Um, but that that sort of risk benefit analysis of the cost of insurance and the potential benefits of it, you know, in light of the risk of being sued is something that an individual can make. But what I'll do is circle back to your question of what you know, what are the issues here and what can a doula do to sort of minimize the likelihood that they would have to draw on malpractice insurance, for example, in advance? And, you know, I think that kind of gets to the question of like, what is a doula and what is their role at a birth? And that's something about which there's been some controversy in the doula community itself um, regarding what it is appropriate or inappropriate for a doula to do at a birth. So pulling that bat lens back, I mean, in general, the role of the doula is to support the birthing mother and the birthing patient. And what does support look like? It can look like, um, you know, emotional and physical support during times of, of pain and stress. Like, so for example, during labor, a doula um, can just be a presence. And, you know, one of the interesting things that I like to remember about doulas is that studies have shown that just knitting in the corner, just a dual physical, you know, emotional support and physical support can be as simple as presence, calm presence, such that we have these studies showing that knitting in the corner reduces the client's risk of cesarean by half. That's pretty huge before you even get to a back rub or a rebozo. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Who's, where is this study? I've never seen this study. I've I never heard that. of this study. Where is this study from? This, that's fascinating. I don't have it in front of me, but I've definitely heard it multiple times years ago. 
I want to say that there's been research on having animals and they found that, yes, we all know that people live longer when they have animals. I think we all know that. I think that's common knowledge, but they also found that people recover more quickly from illnesses. And the most interesting one of the study that I'm referencing is they did a study with college students and they had them take tests alone. They had them take tests with a loved family member in the room. And they had them take tests with their pet in the room. And there was no question they performed the best when their pet was in the room. And they didn't really know what to make of this study. And I appreciate that because I hate when we leap to conclusions on things this mysterious. But they basically said they believe it's just the unconditional love because, you know, love is highly conditional (laughs) And, and it's supposed to be so we can be in safe, appropriate, healthy relationships in life. But it's kind of reminding me of that. You have a loving presence in the room and that does work wonders for us. That is greatly comforting to us before there are hands on us or anything else. That's a pretty dramatic Beautiful. It's It's very beautiful. Well, when you think back to the idea of the doula as the person who mothers the mother, which is the most like sort of ancient Greek, whatever, traditional concept of the doula, that makes sense, right? Because what does the mother do? The mother provides unconditional love and support. And so just like you say, I mean, we know with childbirth, it's powered by oxytocin, which is the love hormone. So anything that can happen in that space that increases the woman's sense of security and love is going to literally facilitate the hormones that make a labor happen, you know, that make birth, the birth go as smoothly as possible. So there's the love um, element. And, but so, so again, that, that foundational role is presence, you know, unconditionally loving and supportive presence. But then if we break that out and we think about the doula's role in the pregnancy, because in order to be effective at the time of the birth, ideally you're going to have a relationship, right? And that if you want to, to, to be perceived as the pet, you know what I mean? Or as, as that warm presence, then there has to be connection. And, and this, you know, we, I think we can table what this, the implications of that are for hospital doulas that are just sort of assigned like a labor and delivery delivery nurse to a given birth, um, you know, how they can be effective in that role and what is needed to support them and be effective in that role. But most of the professional doulas that are not employed by hospitals, the way they work is that they establish a relationship with the patient prenatally, they have meetings, and then they get together that that can look, you know, like a a few contact moments, or it can look like a real solid relationship with lots of time on the phone and materials exchange. It can look different for different doulas and different clients. Um, and then there's their role in the labor and delivery room. Let's let's assume for this conversation that we're talking about hospital births, although some of these principles can apply to um, out of hospital births as well. Um, you could say that prenatally, a lot of their role is educator. So like, you know, so what does the doula do? I would say their three primary roles are support, education, and advocacy. And so then the question is, where do the, what does that look like? And what are the moments in the pregnancy and the birth where those become relevant? Um, prenatally, the primary, that's where the educator is, you know, their primary, like where, where their role as educator is the most potent, because what they, what they can be there for is a resource for the client um, on, on facts related to their medical condition, because one of the limitations of, you know, medical care is that, for example, the prenatal appointments are so brief. The provider, even if the provider has the best of intentions of wanting to ensure that pregnant patients have accurate information, they are just, their hands are tied in their ability to actually sit with that person and talk through um, the complexities that they might be dealing with around issues like, um, blood pressure and hypertension? What are the risk factors or for preeclampsia? How can you minimize your risk of getting it? How do you know if you are getting it? Um, what does it mean if my baby's breach at 35 weeks or 37 weeks? What are the risks and benefits? What are my options? What are the risks and benefits of my options? Doulas can provide that information. They can point them to resources like evidence-based birth. They can have books and articles that they share with clients and they can be even somebody with whom the client can just talk stuff through. So that's the sort of the role as educator. Um, and then, and then there's what's their role in labor and delivery. And of course, that's where their role as supporter is going to come into play. And then the question is, what does support mean? And what support can mean can look different for different clients based on what that client wants and needs from the doula. And one of the roles that support can play is that sub role of advocacy. So then the question is, what does it mean for a doula to be an advocate? And 
the issue there is what can the doula do to ensure that the clients fundamentally, what can the doula do to ensure that the client's rights of informed consent and refusal are upheld during labor and delivery? Because, you know, when we say advocate, one of the the, sort of the flip side of advocate is kind of protector. And that is, you know, what are you protecting this client from? You're protecting them from the likelihood of coming out of this birth traumatized. So many clients hire a doula because they want not only to have the best outcome for themselves and their baby physically, but because they want to have the best outcome for themselves and their baby emotionally and psychologically. And so there is a phenomenon that has been called obstetric violence. And this is a concept that has been invented by um, women's groups in many countries around the world to describe their experiences of care in abusive obstetric systems. You know, it, these, the, the concept came out of South America and Central America, where women are subjected to cesarean section assembly lines. In Brazil, they say the only reason you wouldn't have a cesarean is because your doctor is stuck in traffic. And what that can look like for clients that don't don't mind a cesarean if they need one, but don't want one if they don't, is abuse, especially when and if they try to exercise their right of informed consent and refusal. I mean, as as I've probably discussed in our past episodes, every patient, including pregnant patients, has the right to make the decisions, all of the decisions about their care, about whether they're going to receive an intervention. And they and that's everything from what's going into your IV to whether somebody's cutting you, um, or whether some, you know, anything, you can't be told to do anything. You can be offered services. And then you have the right to be accurately and honestly informed regarding your options and the risks and benefits of each of those options. And you have the right to be supported in making the decision about your care. So, um, you know, obstetric violence is this is the phenomenon of uh, the abuse of birthing patients. And what that really looks like primarily is the violation of the, the right of informed consent and refusal. Obstetric violence lives in the gap between the law of informed consent, which is very clear in every state the, that the doctors have an obligation to provide you with accurate information and to support you in your choices, and the culture of obstetrics, which ignores the law of informed consent. Culturally speaking, obstetrics ignores informed consent, even though the law says what they're supposed to do. And that's where obstetric violence happens. And people come out of that traumatized. They, they can come out of those violations traumatized, as well as, of course, injured by the interventions that were imposed on them without, a bit, without their consent. And doulas have an important role to play in preventing that violence. I want to ask you some practical questions about doulas. There are, there are a couple on my mind. This is the first one. I have clients who sometimes say that they're hiring a doula to help them exercise their right to informed consent, but they sometimes go so far as to assume the doula can say no to an episiotomy on behalf of the client. And I know that doula doesn't have her power of attorney. There's only so much a doula can do under the law. Like the doula really can't speak for that coherent, lucid. Yes, she can with the client's permission. Okay, so can you? Okay, well, with the client's permission, so how, tell me how that, that tell me how that becomes explicit permission under the law. Because if it's not expressed and it isn't explicit, the doctor can very clearly say, "I'm sure the doula wasn't my patient." Can you make sense of all of this? Because I think everyone needs to understand how this part works. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. 
Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E.com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed, a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, Head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. And and the, and the follow-up to that would be then does doesn't this start to put a lot of liability on doulas in in making these decisions for women like Doulas don't make decisions for their clients. I think this is sort of a myth within it's like a almost an urban myth that um, that if a doula speaks up to said, she said no episiotomy, that she's making that decision for the client. So let's unpack this. So coming back to the advocacy role. So doulas have a, a, a potential role to play in advocating for their client's rights. Okay. And so your right of informed consent and refusal means you have the right to make the decisions about your care according to a process. And that process is it's it's laid out. It's laid out by in bioethics and it's laid out in the law. It involves communication. You have a right to be provided with certain information. You have the right to ask all the questions. You have the right to have your voice heard and have the things you say respected. And you have the right to make the decisions about your care. And so the question is, what's the doula's role in this? So this is very important. And the issue that you're raising is, is really at the heart of a lot of the struggle that doulas face when they try to figure out what can I or can't I do to protect my client in these situations. And the reason this is such an important question for doulas is not just because they want the best outcome for their client, but because when doulas feel, when doulas bear witness to the abuse of their clients, they can come out traumatized, secondarily traumatized by 100%. the abuses that they witness, yes. especially when mm -hmm. the abuses that they witness are happening to their client because their client is so vulnerable. They're, mm -hmm. they're vulnerable already because they're pregnant and in labor. And often the abuses that are being imposed on birthing patients are imposed on them not only because they're female and pregnant, but they are exacerbated by issues like racism ageism against, you know, teen moms, for example, or older moms, even um, uh, anti-migrant sentiments. We know from studies around the world that the more otherness is projected onto the body of a birthing patient by their providers, the more likely that person is to die, the more likely they are to see their baby die, and the more likely they are to come out traumatized. So when doulas sit on their hands and do nothing while a client is being traumatized, they can be traumatized not only by what they witnessed, and many doulas leave the profession for this reason because they've seen too much abuse, 
but also they can be haunted by the feeling that they were part of the problem because they sat there and they watched it and they did nothing. So this puts doulas in a very difficult situation when they believe, but I'm not allowed to do anything, which is a story being told within many doula communities. So that's what I'd love to address uh, in order to answer your questions. Shall I do that? Or do you have more Please questions? Please do. Yeah. Okay. No. So, so a, a, an, uh, a story that has been told by a, a number of doulas, doula trainers, I believe that Dona has even spread this story, is that speaking for the client is, quote, outside the scope of the doula's role. You might have heard that. It's been said. It's a thing that's passed around. And there's even these, like, um, you know, stories that are put, posted on Facebook. I saw years ago. It's been a while since I saw one of these. But where it's like a story is told of a doula who spoke up at some point during a labor or, or here's another one client says the doula told that the doctor said induce and my doula said I didn't have to induce. So I didn't induce. And now my baby's in the NICU and it's all the doula's fault. And everybody piles on the doula because the doula shouldn't have said anything. Okay. And, and, and so, so let me actually unpack those a little bit. One is the prenatal moment where the doula say back to the educator, the client comes back to the doula and says, you know, the doctor says I should induce on Tuesday for my two um, elevated blood pressures. What do you think? So the doula can say whatever the doula wants to say in that moment. The, the best thing for the doula to do would be to provide information. So it's, you know, first of all, did you get it and ask some questions? Do you know what your diagnosis is? Did the doctor tell you exactly what your diagnosis is? Because two wonky blood pressures is not a diagnosis. Are they telling you you have gestational hypertension? If you don't know, go back and find out. You know what I mean? Go back and sit with them and say, what exactly is my diagnosis? And what exactly are the medical facts that led you to that conclusion so that I can really understand it? Because if they just say two wonky blood pressures, the client doesn't even know what their options are. If they say mild gestational hypertension and they don't tell the client that you have an option other than induction, the client can go do some research and find that out themselves. Needless to say, of course, the providers should be accurately informing the client of their options, that they have the option for induction or they have the option for increased monitoring. The fact that they don't and that they'll say your, your option is, is induction and if the client asks questions, they sort of say some weird things about danger to the baby, but they reassure you that your baby's fine. Clients can come out traumatized from just that kind of a conversation because it's crazy making. They're doing their best to try to get the information and find out what their options are and keep their baby safe. And there's this feeling that the information is being held from them. That's the kind of ubiquitous informed consent violation that is happening in obstetric spaces. And that causes the patient to turn back to the doula and say, do you have any more information for me? We hear this all the time. This the women are constantly in the place of feeling my baby could die at, at, at any moment. And at the same time, everything is fine. Like, what are you supposed to do with that? I see women sobbing over that, over those conversations time. years after they occur. So that's a prenatal moment with the education. And so then like when I saw those posts on Facebook that says, if you told her, you know, even if the doula were to say, I don't think you should induce. The woman doesn't get to turn around later and say, my doula led me down a golden path and it's her fault because what you need to be reminding your client, and this includes in your client agreement, is that they are the decision maker about their care and that you are always going to inform them to be the decision maker about the care. If I'm the pregnant patient and my doctor says induce and I ask the mailman, what do you think? And they say, don't induce. And I ask the doula and she says, I can ask 25 different people. And I get to make the decision. And if I make a decision to go against my doctor's advice, I'm responsible. I don't get to say somebody else misled me. And when I do that, I'm I'm just sort of feeding this cultural story that women don't make decisions. Other people make decisions for women. And that we and so if we didn't do what the doctor said, the question is, who led our little lady brain down the wrong path? That's not how it works. So um, but again, prenatally. The doula and the client want to have some clarity about what the doula's role is. And I'll, I'll get back to that in a second. So I want to talk about this idea of scope of practice in the birth setting, because I'd say, you know, the, a, a classic example of secondary trauma that I've heard expressed to me by doulas is the woman has been very clear that she doesn't want an episiotomy. She said this many times prenatally. She understands risks and benefits of episiotomy. She's told that, those people, if it looks like I'm going to tear, I want a natural tear. I do not want you to cut me. And then, and they say, sure, little lady. And then when the baby's crowning and now the woman's really in a moment where it's really hard to like your, your rational brain to like be protecting yourself, 
the doula sees the doctor doing, because this is what the doctor always does. It's almost like for many doctors, it's like heads come and grab the scissors, cut, pull, because that's, that's what, how they believe babies come out of women is through their cutting. And so the doctor is reaching for the scissors. And then the doula's question is, can I speak? What do I do in that situation? And, and, and if I do speak, how can I be safe when I do it? Because what happens, and this has happened, where the doula says, she said no. And then the woman who's in, you know, you've got fight, flight, freeze, or fawn in a difficult situation. If you're a birthing patient, the place you're going to go is fawn. You cannot fight. You cannot flee. You can't really freeze. They're in fawn. And you know, any of us, if you guys have been in a hospital, but you don't have to be birthing. If you're in a hospital and you're in pain and you're in a hospital gown and you're depending on these people, what you want to do is tend and befriend. It's like, it's so deep. So in that moment, they'll say something to tend and befriend that can sell out the doula. Oh, you know, oh, Trisha, could you just be a little bit, uh, sorry, doctor, Trisha's just gets a little excited. You know what I mean? Now Trisha's completely exposed if she said anything to protect me from that cut that I previously said that I didn't want. Does that happen? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cynthia, we hear this all the time in, in our birth story processing sessions that we have with women. We talk to, you know, women who are highly educated, very empowered, know exactly what they want. And then in the moment, they, as you described, fawn. And they say, I just in the moment couldn't couldn't fight it. Like I, I couldn't speak up. But and do, so you're saying when the doula, doula that's such a betrayal. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a betrayal that happened only because they didn't talk it through an event. So I'm going to give you the solution to that problem. So in a way that that problem and the attacks on doulas that have happened when doulas have advocated without clarity have led many doulas to say, you know what, it's outside our scope. It's not a role. They reframe the doula speaking in that moment as making the decision for the woman. And they say, that's not allowed. You don't get to make the decision for her. And so then they say, speaking for the woman that's what they call it, is outside our scope. So now I want to unpack that because it's not true. First of all, doulas don't have a scope. Scope of practice is a concept that applies to licensed professionals that describes the scope of what they are licensed to do under their license. It's what they are, you know, what you're, when you're licensed as a midwife, you have a scope and that scope pertains to what you are allowed to do under your license in accordance with your training. Similarly, doctors have a scope because they're trained and their license reflects what they are trained and authorized to do. Doulas are not licensed professionals. There is no state body that has said, this is what a doula is trained and licensed to do under her do, license. Do they and, have a do they have a scope within their um, organization that creden credentials them or certifies them? It's not credentialing for it's sort of certifying. Credentialing or certifying organizations are only credentialing or certifying you to say this is what we taught you. They don't create your scope. They're not a licensing body. So if I'm certifying you as um, you know, Shafia Monroe consulting doula training, my certification is going to say you learned ABCDEFG with me. And that's, and you are now, so you can show everybody, you know how to do, say they teach Rebozo, you know how to do Rebozo. That's got nothing to do with scope. Scope is about what you're allowed to do as a midwife comes up to um, C-section, but it does not include surgery. You are not, surgery that's is outside your scope. dictated by my both my state and the well your licensing it's board. dictated only by your licensing board and that is a state level body finding the perfect pregnancy and breastfeeding bra is no easy task your search is now over meet davin and adley a mother-owned pumping nursing and maternity bra company with a unique comfortable and stylish cropped cami this item is perfect to wear all day long from day one of your pregnancy right through the end of your breastfeeding journey and probably beyond. The Amelia Cami makes pumping and breastfeeding easy while looking and feeling good on your body. It works seamlessly for both wearable pumps and flange pumps, and you can breastfeed in it. It also has a beautiful stretch lace back. You can sleep in it, dress up in it, go out in it, whatever you want to do in it. And trust us, the quality in this item and all of their items are top notch. They're soft, durable, and attractive. These bras will truly go the distance. Davin and Adley carry a gorgeous selection of maternity and nursing wear, and they have an innovative one-piece breast pad that we've never seen anywhere else. So no more losing those solo breast pads, ladies. 
Go ahead and check out the full collection of maternity and nursing items at davinandadley.com and use your promo code down to birth to save 15%. All right, breastfeeding moms. Do you want to know one of our all-time favorite items for your nursing journey? If you know us, you probably could guess it. Yep, it's the Silverette Nursing Cup. These little nipple heroes not only protect, but also heal because they're made of real silver. It is naturally antimicrobial, antifungal, and anti-inflammatory. These little cups will be your best friend in the early sensitive weeks of breastfeeding your baby. And our favorite part is they last literally forever. You can pass them on just like you would a favorite piece of jewelry. Head on over to silverettusa.com and use promo code down to birth to save 15%. Got it. Which okay. doulas yeah. aren't subject to. Right. Doulas do not have licensing bodies and they should be very wary in their effort of pursuing professionalism of getting licensed. Even certification is problematic. Once you have any authority other than you and the client defining what you're allowed to do, be concerned. Because if we know that if a doula just knitting in the corner is going to reduce her risk of C-section by 50%, who gets to come in and say that she's allowed to knit in the corner or not? Why would we have a government body talking about The only reason anybody would get interested in saying what a doula can or can't do is to protect doctors, never to protect women. It's going to protect protect the the comfort or discomfort of the medical professionals by saying, she's not allowed. She's not allowed to do this or that. And the only person who should be saying what you're allowed to do or not do, of course, is overarching law. Of course, everybody there's certain rules that apply to everybody in a hospital room, right? You can't get violent, for example. Um, And then your agreement with your client. So what I realized a couple of years ago, was that what was happening here around this issue with scope of practice and all this rhetoric around it is that these doulas and doula organizations are using that whole conversation as a cover for what's really going on, which is that they're uncomfortable with conflict. I had this experience a few years ago of speaking at a midwife conference as women, and they're uncomfortable with conflict because they are socialized gendered female. And everybody who is socialized gendered female has been socialized to be uncomfortable with confrontation and conflict because they've been socialized to believe it is their job to hold the social fabric together and to keep everybody happy and to be pleasing. And so many women, so so I had this, this experience. I was talking at a midwife conference about midwives advocating together for their common interests and not stabbing each other in the back, which midwives so often do, and selling out their common interests. And a midwife, this young indigenous midwife raised her hand and said, You know, I find it difficult to be in a relationship with women who don't have good boundaries because a woman who has good boundaries, she'll tell you if you did something to upset her or hurt her feelings, and she'll hold space for you guys to talk it through and see if you can resolve it. She said a woman who doesn't have good boundaries, she won't tell you why she's mad. You'll feel that she's mad. You'll feel something's wrong. And you might even ask, are you mad at me? And she'll say, no, I'm I'm fine. But you'll feel something's wrong and she'll show you things are wrong in nonverbal ways that lead to a loss of trust within the relationship. And I was like, wow, because we've all experienced that. If you've been in relationship with a female, with a lot of females, you've experienced that. And, and for me, it was profound, a profound shift in my understanding of boundaries. Cause before that, I thought boundaries was saying no and pushing people away. And she was framing boundaries as not pushing people away, but calling them in boundaries as loving yourself and the other person enough to say, to tell the truth and say, my dear, this is what's not working for me in this dynamic right now. And I, I, I respect both of us enough to be honest with you about that and to create an opportunity for us to recalibrate that and see if we can make this work better. And so when you think about what thinking about that and then applying it to the doula situation, um, you know, why do women have poor boundaries in the con- in the way that I just described poor boundaries because of their discomfort with confrontation? We know women who can't even have a confrontation with their best girlfriends or people that are close to them without feeling like they're going to have a crisis. The idea of a confrontation or a conflict makes them feel like emotionally overwhelmed and they'll do anything to avoid it kind of thing because of this deep unconscious beliefs that have come from the way they've been socialized to be pleasing and to um to protect relationships and to avoid any kind of relationship rupture and so what's valuable with this new concept of boundaries is that it shows 
that it reminds doulas, you're not being rude and women, you're not being rude when you say no and you and you, you protect yourself. You're being respectful actually by telling the truth. You're respecting yourself and you are respecting them. And so understanding that, what it sort of led me to is to make a new set of recommendations for doulas. And now I'm finally going to get to your, the heart of your question. How can we make this work? Or what could it look like um, for advocacy to happen? And what's the role of the client agreement? And so like this relates to what I'm trying to do with the Birthrights Law Project. I think that the, the client agreement, the quite okay, so here's here's what doulas need to think about if they're thinking about can I speak in the birth room to protect my client? And if so, how do I speak? So I'm not making decisions for her, but I'm protecting her rights to make those decisions. And I think what that looks like is this. First of all, you as a doula get to think about whether you don't have a scope. What you have is a job description. So to back up a little bit, doulas don't have a scope of practice. Doulas have a job description. They've got a role. And that role is something that the doula actually has a lot of flexibility to define. Like as a midwife, what you do as a midwife is kind of already set by the profession of midwifery. You know what I mean? And so it's like, these are the things that a midwife should know how to do, that we're all trained to know how to do. And then what's outside your scope is often set by the regulations of your state. And so that can differ to some extent state by state. Um, and then there's community standards that also regulate scope, especially in places where there are not regulations. Um, but with doulas, like what a doula does can actually be highly variable, right? Because there is, it's not a medical profession where all doulas are trained to do X. Some doulas can do rebozo, for example, to help support you, help turn your baby. Some doulas didn't do that training and don't offer that. Some doulas might offer massage. Some doulas might not. Some doulas might um, offer, you know, culturally competent care for specific communities because they're of that community. Other doulas might not, you know, and so there's like just so many different techniques, um, cultural values, and on and on and on that doulas can bring that make them unique and special as a doula. Like, what is it that you as a doula makes you different from other doulas? That's about you, your job description, your focus, your values, your training. And that can include, and you get to decide what's on there. You know what I mean? You can make a list. And this is part of what I do with my doulas when I set them up with their legal documents is really like, like here's a menu of all the things a doula could do. Which are the ones you want to do? And are there things that aren't on the list that you want to add? And that is your job description. And one of the things that should be on that, that every doula should think about for whether she wants to include it or not in her job description is whether her role includes protecting the client's right of informed consent and refusal. You can decide whether you're willing to do that. And so you at the doula, rather than this nonsense concept of it's, oh, it's outside my scope to speak for you, just be really honest with yourself. Are you even theoretically willing to be somebody who protects the client's right to have their voice heard at all times and have their have that process happen? Or is it who you are as an individual that is so uncomfortable that no way, I don't want to do that. So decide. And if it is something you're willing to do, then that then the next step is to have a conversation with your client prenatally. Okay, but I, I want to ask this question. Mm-hmm. Let's say there's the client and the doula at the birth. And let's say the doula sees the doctor reaching for the scissors. And the doula says, no episiotomy. It's been my understanding that the doctor has the legal right to turn to the doula and say, you're not the client. And if the client says nothing, she's acquiescing. So let's get there. He can, okay. Yeah. Let me just walk you down the, the path of what the doula can do if the doula is willing to protect that client from the episiotomy. What can we do to prevent what you just described? Okay. So step one, decide for yourself, are you willing to? Step two, if you are, then the next key moment is when you're defining your role with your client. And that's either at your first or your second appointment. It's around the time that they're executing your agreement. And that can look like, here's the things I offer. Which of these things do you think you're going to want? And one of the things that I offer is protection for your right of informed consent and refusal, because you have the right to blah, 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 all the things I've already described. And is that important to you? You know, because some clients, that's they're like, you know what? I just want to go do what the doctor says. I want an epidural and I want a back rub. You know what I mean? And I want you to go get me a smoothie. And that's fine. They have every right to have that attitude about their care. And then, then the, that's not. This is going to be a non-issue for the doula because the doula's only job is to get a smoothie and to help 
you know, whatever, like facilitate the client doing what the doctor says or the midwife says. And, but if many clients are hiring a doula for very, for exactly that reason, because their right of informed consent and refusal is very important to them. They know it exists. Maybe it was violated in a previous birth and they want that doula in there because they want to minimize the likelihood that their rights are going to be violated. And so if that's important to the client, then they can, they can agree. If the client says that's important to me and the doula says, I'm willing to do that, then we proceed to step three. So step three is when the client and the doula sit together prenatally and talk about and actually do some work thinking and talking through what comes up for them or when, the, when they imagine themselves saying no. Because that's the thing. When we talk about like women have a hard time literally saying loud and clear no without going to, but I love you and I promise that I'm still connected with you, you know, and wanting to tend to the relationship at the very time, like just saying a firm, clear no can feel excruciating. So prenatally is the time to, to, to look at and start working through even with role play, what comes up emotionally and talking about the fact that when we're in labor and when we're in that room, we, we might be surrounded by, now needless to say, of course, both of those people is, wants to assume the best. Of course, they want to assume it's going to be an amazing team. We're going to have a beautiful love in the room. And it's going to be like a, incredible for everybody in there, including all the doctors and nurses. But there's a risk that we might be dealing with a team that everybody assumes that they have the right to do whatever they want. And when we speak up, this is what happens to birthing patients. They speak up to say, ask questions or to express their opinion or their decision. Everybody's like, why is it talking? You know what I mean? Like there's no expectation that the client's going to say anything, let alone that the client's going to have a say in what's going to happen. Because again, we're back to that gap between law and culture. You're in a cultural space where everybody assumes that the birthing patient doesn't have much of a say in what's going on and that delivery is something that happens to their body. So prenatally, the patient and the doula need to talk about what's going what's to come up when we're in the situation. Like what, what can we imagine feeling in a situation where everybody else is acting like they're the professionals and we're not, and our voices are given very little value. Are we able to stand together in the discomfort and, and know that if, I, and the doula needs to be able to say, so if I'm going to have your back and what that's going to look like is protecting your decisions. Of course, it's not going to look like ever look like me making a decision for you. How would I even do that? But it is going to look like if you've been very clear about what you want, I am going to remind them of what you said. If the client and the patient I mean, the client and the doula can acknowledge that uncomfortable feelings might come up. Then they can also acknowledge and prepare for the doula can be really clear. I need to know that if I put my step into a vulnerable space myself by standing up for you, that you're going to stand up back for me, that we're going to be a team in the protection of your right of informed consent and refusal. Then once you have that agreement, you proceed to step four. Step four is labor and delivery. So this is how you're going to prevent the doctor from saying, that's not, that's not your role. And that's that when they, they have an agreement, the client and the doula, that they, have, they make this agreement before they get there. When they get there, the client is going to introduce the doula to everybody on the team by saying, this is my doula, Cynthia. This is my doula, Cynthia. One of Cynthia's roles for me in this birth is going to be to look out for my right of informed consent and refusal because it's very important to me. So I have asked Cynthia to make sure that before anybody does anything to me, they have taken the time to look me in my eyes, tell me what they want to do and why, tell me what it involves, tell me what the options are, tell me what the risks involve, answer all my questions, and make sure that I have had the chance to freely choose what I want. And so then when the doula speaks up to say, oh, did that conversation happen before you're, I noticed you're putting something in the IV, but did you have a chance to discuss that yet? Now the people in the room should not be like, why is it talking? But instead they know she's fulfilling her role in a hospital space. It's like the military. They want to know what your role is. Everybody has a role. And so when your role is already defined as the protector of the right of informed consent and refusal, they should not be giving pushback on you when you speak up to protect her right of informed consent and refusal. I understand this from a social perspective that this is how it's optimal and this will function. But I want to know, is the doctor liable? Did the doctor break the law when the doula said no to something and the client didn't and the doctor proceeded anyway? Was the law broken? It depends on whether the woman had spoken previously. So if she had ever said previously, I don't want an episiotomy, and then the um, the doctor reached for the scissors and the, and the doula said, she said no episiotomy, 
then then the doula the, the, the doula cannot be attacked. Okay, if the, but if she never said it, if she never expressly <laughs> said it, and the doula says no episiotomy, and the doctor gives one anyway, the in doctor that situation, the yeah. doula makes herself uh, vulnerable when the doula says if the if the client has never verbalized it. The doula should not be the first person to verbalize the decision because then it looks like she's making the decision. So she doesn't have power of attorney. She doesn't have it. Okay. It's not her job. I understood half an hour. She shouldn't assume that she, that the client doesn't want an episiotomy. She should know it. And, and again, back to your prenatal education and preparation stuff. Like if, has a client never heard of an episiotomy before? If so, why not? You know what I mean? If you, if you know enough to hire a doula, then you should know enough to read a book you know, and know, and, and so they should have that conversation. And so if the client knows she doesn't want an episiotomy, the client needs to communicate that to her providers prior to the delivery. Now that, that said, the, if the, if the doctor wants to do something that has not been discussed yet, the doctor still does have an obligation to ask the patient. So that's why in that situation, the doula should not be saying no episiotomy. If it's never been discussed, the doula should be saying, Doctor, remember my role is to look out for her right of informed consent and refusal. I see you reaching for the scissors. Trisha, did the doctor ask you if you want an episiotomy? And so now the doctor has to talk to the client. The real role of the doula there is to be the trigger for the informed consent conversation, to stop the action before, because we know that these procedures are done all the time without proper informed consent. So the doula's role is to stop the action so the informed consent can happen. The doula's role is to protect the process of informed consent, not to protect the outcome or the decision. You know what I mean? The decision gets to be made by the client. And if the process is followed, then the decision will be the client's decision. So that can be their role. Again, it's written on the hospital wall, the patient's rights. It's written in the law so that nobody should have a problem with the doula protecting that process. And so that's their role. Their role is to say, but if the client spoke, like another very important aspect of their role is to make sure the client's voice has been heard. What does racism look like? It looks like not listening. So if the if that woman is speaking and her voice is not being heard, then it's, she, she, I think she's spoken to this. Did you all listen to her? You know, so there, there's, there's roles that can be played to amplify the client's voice. But at the end of the day, that is the doula's role legitimate role with regard to informed consent and refusal, but only if her client agrees prenatally. She doesn't get to come in there and do that unless she and the client have made that clear in advance. Um, so I think the answer to your question is very, very, the issue you raise is critical because it gets back to that point about feminization. You know what I mean? Your clients want to sit there and be sweet and let the doula be the bad cop because they're uncomfortable with the, the fact that they might need to assert their rights in that space. And if they're uncomfortable with the fact that they might need to assert their rights in that space, first of all, find a different space because you should be birthing in a space where you can feel safe. And if there is no way to do that, then then you're only shield against, you know, variability of C-section rates, uh, dysfunction and abuse is your right of informed consent and refusal, your right to be recognized as the captain of the ship. And the doula can have a very important role to play for you in that, but not by becoming the captain of the ship on your behalf. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. Well, it's, it's kind of like you know, when you realize, like, all three of us care about justice, all three of us are like devoted to it. And it's like, when you realize when you look at others, and you're like, what would it be like not to care? Like, what would it be like to like, be like, Meh, there's people get mistreated, but I'm, I'm busy making cakes, you know what I mean? Like, like, there are people, that's a lot of people, you know, and when you're like, wow, that's just not at all my emotional reality. <laughs>